Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station. Well, maybe that's a matter of debate, but I think so anyway. Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by fellow co-founder and senior editor at Navarra Media, James Butler, at Pierce Bennett. Hi, James. Hi. Wearing some very fetching frames. <laughs> when we're live streaming this stuff on a, on a GoPro, people will be able to see it. Uh, on Wednesday, after this final... PMQs. David Cameron stepped down as Prime Minister after six years in the role and 11 years as leader of the Conservative Party. He's replaced, as I'm sure many of you are aware, by Theresa May, our new Prime Minister, whose cabinet includes David Davis, Andrea Leadsom, Priti Patel and Liam Fox, somewhat under-remarked in the mainstream media. This is, without doubt, the most right-wing cabinet in decades. Today we'll be, assess- we'll be assessing the Cameron legacy, asking where he may sit historically. It's early days, of course, but we can try our best. And more importantly, how the nature of his demise and what comes next will shape politics in the years to come. We'll be looking at his legacy economically, politically, socially, asking what it means not only for Britain, but the Conservative Party and maybe even Labour too. He does leave office with one record to his name. Not even 50, he is the youngest Prime Minister in modern times to resign and leave office. Whether that's an achievement or not, I'm not sure, but he's a long time to reflect on his uh, time in office. James, your thoughts? Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, the first thing I thought is, uh, I I was reading press coverage of the Cameron legacy, which, you know, they have to scrabble around for pretty hard, uh, (laughs) because there really isn't very much, actually. But, I, you know, I I should start with a kind of uh, quibble about the word. Right. Um, and I, I'm, I always worry when people talk about politicians' legacies because legacy is itself a word favoured by politicians and it encourages us and it's something the, the, the press are very, very happy to do. Um, it encourages to adopt the viewpoint of politicians, you know, this view of kind of great men who leave their imprint on the world. It encourages us to judge what they do in terms of whether it leaves a personal imprint or to admire the technique and execution of power rather than judge it by its consequences. And for those reasons, I'm sort of, I'm very, I tend to be wary of talking about a politician's legacy in any sort of uneasy or, or you know, rather, you know, unreflective terms. So, you know, Thatcher and Attlee both left legacies that are very different in, 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 in their consequences. Um, they're, they're, they're very far from the same. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the, the major reasons I'm hesitant to discuss Cameron alone. Uh, and the terms, uh, the terms we choose and, and how we use them have a great impact here. And it's so one of the things we should think is it's bad to think like a politician, that kind of puffed up ego and envisioning one's name in the history books. And that is very distinctive of David Cameron. There's, you know, the, the, the sense that he had an eye on, on, on himself as prime minister. Uh, is is one of the things that has been a continual criticism of him, less from the left um, than from sort of parts of the old conservative right throughout his ministry, was this idea that he's sort of a little bit of a huckster, a little bit of a showman, uh, and not interested in, in those very old Tory virtues of kind of statecraft and things like that. So anyway, we can talk of consequences, we can talk of a distinctive politics which defines an era, and Cameron's is now largely at an end, and that has consequences within the Tory party, and we'll talk a little, I think, about the Tory party, the Tory party and whether it has a distinctive ideology, what the Tory party is, um, what it tries to do, um, and within the country, and those two things are obviously connected. Uh, and, you know, one of the things to, to mention, I suppose, is that you can't talk about David Cameron without talking about George Osborne, right? Uh, and Who's now also... Who has now also gone. Departed the scene. Um, and in one sense, this is the end of, of a distinctively Cameronite set 
uh, in government. And I think the social dimensions of that are quite important. Yeah. So their, their attitude, their sort of relatively liberal attitude um, on, on social issues, although not uh, hardly perfectly so. But most importantly, I think, is, that, is to remember the sort of economic consequences of, of this period. And if we're going to talk in terms of legacies, then the major legacy, I think, is in George Osborne's ability, uh, in or George Osborne's project, uh, which has been to reshape the state uh, and really, really move it away from that the, you know, the remnants of a kind of distributive social state, which were sort of sustained under Blair, and there was a reason they were sustained under Blair. The reason they were sustained under Blair, it was partly to sort of shore up, a, you know, quite a broken economy, really, to allow a boom in the South and relatively limited redistribution um, across the nation. Perhaps what's happened recently is reaping some of the consequences of that. We can go into that. But one of the things I thought was interesting, um, and it's something that Aditya Chakraborty pointed out, uh, in, in a column today is in David Law's recent memoir. Uh, David Law's sort of disgraced. Uh, He's got a memoir? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the cabinet for people, like 10 minutes. Yeah, these people, they all write memoirs these wow. days. Wow. Um, so uh, he, David Law's saying, uh, Osborne had prepared, and this is pre, pre-budget, I can't remember which budget, Osborne had prepared a £1 billion tax giveaway on sort of tax on savings. Um, and... Uh, it was it was not justifiable, right? Like there is no way it's justifiable in any in any sense, and and so this is apparently a direct quote of Osborne. Uh, it will only really be of help to stupid, affluent, and lazy people who can't be bothered to put their savings away into tax efficient vehicles, but it will still be very popular. We have polled it, and and that that is that is Osborne. That on the one hand, kind of you know there, there are you know two things that have driven him politically. One is this the a kind of sort of. Uh, the dregs of a kind of Thatcherite instinct, the the idea that the state crowds out private endeavour, and on the other hand, this kind of uh, this sense that that the economy should probably be rebalanced. We probably shouldn't be so reliant on the financial sector. We should probably try and stimulate uh, productive growth away from London. Uh, you know, this sort of northern powerhouse. It's very stuff, 2010 which, vibe. I mean, they stopped right, saying I, that after a while. Right? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's it's been there. It's Cons- come back. It's, the northern yeah, powerhouse. Yeah, it, sure. it's it's been there. But, I mean, it, it never actually happened, right? I mean, you know, in terms of infrastructure investment, I mean, like about half of it ended up in London, uh, maybe about 1% ended up in the north. I mean, it's really ludicrous, this stuff. I mean, you look at the figures, it just doesn't add up. So those, there are the two, those two things there. And look, the, the end of his tenure, you know, ended with like red car and collapse of you know, industry in red car yeah. and Port Talbot as well. Yeah, British uh, and, entries over, basically. And, and this is the question that was never really addressed during this, this ministry. And look, it's a question that actually defines the political moment in some ways, um, you know, certainly in terms of the kind of people who think about policy, um, and it's one that no one has solved, which is that one of the major difficulties facing all our political projects is what do you do about globalization? And and that's not a question that has really even been tackled. Right. And when we say globalization, we mean, in a sentence, <laughs> or two? Uh, the, the fact that you can't have a close single state economy anymore that you're so if you're producing things like steel for instance mm. you'll be undercut by cheaper labor and cheaper production right. elsewhere right race the bottom yeah right absolutely right um yes yeah, so carrying on that that set of conclusions i guess i would say that the <laughs> i'm going to use the word legacy even though i agree with you um let's call it the hangover <laughs> um firstly 
a failure to deal with the deficit. So the cornerstone of the Cameron Osborne uh, government, both in coalition 2010 to 2015 and thereafter in the year uh, until Wednesday, was about deficit elimination. We have to get on top of the deficit. The deficit's a terrible thing. They never explain why. It's not actually that bad a thing. Britain's run deficits pretty much constantly since the late 1970s. But again, nobody says that. Margaret Thatcher only ran one surplus. Again, nobody says that. Uh, the deficit was around 120, 130 billion. Now, it was, that means the British state was spending more than it was bringing in primarily through general taxation. 130 billion, a lot of money. And of course, that means increased national debt. And at a certain point, yes, the national debt can get so high that people won't lend Britain money anymore because it looks too risky and its sovereign debt rating will go down, yada, yada, yada. We were nowhere near that, by the way. Right. So the deficit was going to be eliminated by 2015. Guess what? The deficit 2016 is 73 billion pounds, something like that. So we're spending 73 billion more than we bring in. So it wasn't limited, eliminated by 2015. Then they say in 2015, we're going to eliminate it by 2020. It's going to go by 2020. We didn't realise the scale of the challenge, even though everybody said in 2010, you can't do this. And lo and behold, one wet and rainy Thursday, I think two weeks ago, that disappeared as well. And they said, oh, with Brexit, we can't get rid of the deficit by 2020. It'll maybe in the mid-2020s, which you and I have been saying for, for years. It was not mm -hmm. that kind of uh, hacking at the state, which they have done. It's at the smallest, as a percentage of GDP, I think public spending is at the smallest in a very, 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 very long time, as a percentage of GDP, the size of the economy. Uh, they still couldn't do this. It was ridiculous, right? So uh, debt's gone up under the Tories. These are the facts. The public debt's gone up more under the Tories than all previous Labour governments combined. It now stands at around 85% of GDP. Hasn't been going down. Now that growth is going to go down because of Brexit, growth will go down. Okay, we, you might say we won't go in recession. I think we'll go in recession. But even if you don't think that, growth's going to go down. So borrowing projections will be higher. The deficit will go up. It has to go up, and they probably want it to go up to stop the recession and to increase demand. Debt to GDP will probably be around 100% by the end of the decade. That's mm -hmm. beginning to look... Spain, Italy, style sovereign debt. The great thing is we have our own currency. We're not in the euro. It's not that big a deal. We're not yet Japan. 200% of GDP, by the way. Um, but it is an issue. It is an issue. It's not something, you can't just be like Richard Murphy and say it doesn't matter. It does matter, just not as much as people say. So that's the one thing. They failed to deal with the deficit. Number two, I'd say obviously Brexit. We can talk about that later on in the show. It's, it's huge. I, I said it's the biggest event, historical event in Europe since the fall of the Berlin Wall. I know no, Jim slightly disagrees, but it's definitely in that league. It's a big thing. Um, number three, Britain's jobs miracle. They said that they'd created 31 million jobs. This is that project you're saying of effectively reshaping the British economy. Those 31 million jobs created, many of them were just existing jobs that were outsourced. So they weren't created. They just moved from one to the other, from public to private. Also, you saw a massive increase in self-employment and so on. Uh, you have either a flattening or a real fall in wages, greater precarity. Uh, you have uh, disincentivizing the claiming of benefits through lowering them or flattening them, punitive sanctioning and workfare. So, yes, lots of people are working, but they're not great jobs. Almost all low-paid service jobs uh, and many of those people shouldn't be working, actually. Not, not, mm. you know, not a huge number, but hundreds of thousands of those people shouldn't be working. It's not safe for them to be working. Uh, and like I say, wages have fallen massively. This is the weakest recovery in the history of the British economy, uh, in the modern history of the British economy. And then finally, finally, uh, Cameron will say, and it's true, him and Osborne were a particular kind of Tory, 
gay marriage, my biggest achievement. Well, guess what? That was going to happen anyway, right? Yes. And it got through, and we really need to remind people of this, it got through with Labour and Lib Dem votes. The Tory party, people like Priti Patel, Theresa May, Andrea Leadsom, May voted for it, by the way, I believe, this time. She's voted against every other piece of gay discrimination legislation she could get. Yeah, well, I mean, she saw which way the wind was blowing. Right, exactly. But... Actually, many David Davis, I think, they either abstained or they voted against this thing. So that tells you what you need to know about the Tory party, which, by the way, since last May, has its first majority since 1992. Okay, yeah. And we've now got this right-wing cabinet. So this is, this is actually very different even to, even to two, three months ago in terms of the, the politics, uh, not only of the Prime Minister, but the people that she surrounds herself with. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. I think, it's, I think it's very important to think that actually the legacy of this you know the Cameron ministry is one to bequeath to us like an enormous economic and constitutional crisis um of, you know, for, for which there seems to be no exit instantly um you know we have Philip Hammond saying now oh, well we're not going to be in the EEA um the you know, European economic era yeah uh, and you know i mean this is uh, <laughs> i i don't i don't you know there is there's a lot of speculation about what Theresa May is doing with her cabinet maybe we can talk about that in a bit but <clears throat> i think more importantly i think uh this reshaping of the state in, in, that has happened under Cameron Osborne, because it is impossible to separate the two. Um, this is going to be their longest legacy, and it, it's going to be institutional. So it, it, one of the things that we're going to have a problem with with Brexit is that uh, the cab, you know, the the civil service has shrunk by about twenty percent and had many of its departmental budget budgets cut by about a quarter over the course of this ministry. So if there was any slack to take up with this enormous change in law and in diplomacy, in you know, the very basics of a modern state, then it's certainly gone over the course of the past six years. Um so that's important. Um but but bigger than that is that so on the one hand a kind of reshaping of the institutions of the state. Right, and that goes from Whitehall all the way down to kind of just like local uh, civil service institutions. I'm, I'm talking uh, like job centre stuff as as much as you know Whitehall. Um, that's all kind of one thing that they're reshaping. Um, but but maybe even more importantly is the changing in a kind of common sense about what the state should do and what it's for, uh, and and that is actually more dangerous and more difficult to combat. One of the major political tussles over the course of the next decade will be trying to uh, re-articulate some sense of the social against the private. And that's really actually increasingly difficult. Um, there is a, there's a real, real accomplishment here, which, you know, when you talk to people about kind of social provision, by which I mean uh, social provision of healthcare, uh, social provision of housing, social provision of education, people go, it is too expensive though, we can't do it anymore. And that is that is a triumph. That's a triumph on their part. And it's it's something that we have made very few inroads in actually doing something about. Yeah. Um, and we might think about what way there is to combat that because it is very difficult and the one thing that won't do it is nostalgia right the kind of 1945 Clement Attlee style nostalgia mm-hmm. I don't think that works anyway so so this stuff this stuff here you bring up gay marriage and I think this is very very interesting had Cameron not found gay marriage he'd have had very very little to talk about in terms of meaningful social reform um, and it does seem to have been a sincere desire on his part you know he is not 
uh, you know, part of the kind of Colonel Hangem Floggem Brigade. Like this is like the old social base of the Tory Party is still there, but definitely not his base when he was in power. Um, look, he he. It's rational, also economically on his part, bring in an irrationally excluded constituency into the institutions of state, um, by which I, I.e. marriage, um, and this will bind them into a cohesive political project. Um, and that's especially good for the Tories because gay people have money. I mean, not all of us, uh, but like many gay people don't have children. And if they're in stable uh, partnerships, then that tends to mean that they spend more. The pink pound. Um, I, yeah, I mean, you know, it's overstated, but it's a real, it's a real phenomenon. Um, so this says, I think, a lot about David Cameron. It says he's not bound by the historic moralizing convention of the old Tory party. Um, you know, he's relatively cosmopolitan, relatively socially liberal. Um, various exclusions apply. Um, but I'm much more interested in kind of the brute factor of money and who has it rather than who they sleep with. Um, and I suppose being around Boris Johnson for a considerable while will broaden one's mind. Um, otherwise, his tenure has been, I think, by and large, one of torpor. And stagnancy, you know, we've had a relatively immobile political system, relatively sporadic social struggle. He has, you know, by historical assessment, been quite a diffident administrator of British capitalism mm -hmm. without a grand project, without, you know, with a tendency to kind of orient himself towards political calculation, short term political calculation. It's one of the reasons that the referendum happened at all. It's a calculation. It was a calculation to kind of quiet and solidify his party's rights under threat from UKIP and say, look, we are going to solve this problem, which is the problem of party management, um, by promising you a referendum. Uh, so this this administrative problem solved with a grand gesture, not really thought through, not really thinking about the And the details could have made the difference, right? Votes for 16-year-olds, different time of year, yeah. further down the line. I mean, frankly, had he, actually, had he actually not won the last election and stayed in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, he could have jumped the referendum as part of an agreement deal. But, you know, whatever. Again, um, that was that was something of an operative presumption, wasn't it? Not many people yeah, were thinking there would be a majority government. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing. So now we're in this situation, we're, we're in the situation where we have real, real problems. Um, uh, they've disappeared. And what has happened is you've had a resurgence of a conservative right. And Theresa May, quite difficult to pin down. I thought like her, interest, her en entrance into Downing Street, very, very interesting. Fantastic. Really interesting speech. Mm. Really interesting. Kind of worrying, actually. Mm. I want to know who her speechwriter mm. is. It, it was very precisely calculated. Mm. But you know, I mean, let's look at what she does because the rhetoric, you know, let's remember that David Cameron entered number 10 with like a kind of one nation, yeah. big society. The Rose Garden with Nick Clegg. But it disappeared relatively yeah. quickly. Felt good at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, not to me. <laughs> but the, there's, so there's a, a really, there's a big question here about what happens, you know, in the calculations around Brexit. So what we do about bank passporting, very technical issue, but it will mean big things for the British economy. Um, what we do about the lack of expertise. What we do about David Davis, actually. I mean, she's appointed this guy as minister for Brexit. Um, but he seems to believe or seems to have believed until very recently that you could strike individual deals with individual nations in the European Union, yeah. which is literally a diplomatic impossibility. Yeah. Um, a Tony Martin Tories, I like to call him. Tony Martin, of course, the farmer who shot 
two burglars. It became a sort of cause celebre for early 90s, mid 90s Tories. And people like David Davis, like, what's the problem? Yeah. yeah they were yeah, burglarizing yeah. his house. He should shoot. They went about 30 feet away and he shot them in the back as they were running. Yeah. But you're right, you're right to say this is the most right-wing government we've had for a long time. And incidentally, that is, that is a longer-term thing, because remember, the Blair government, I think, or the, the Labour governments successively from 1997, I think that's the longest time the Tory party's been out of power since the French Revolution. Hmm. Anyway, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't I mean, matter. To say it's it, true, yeah, even William Gladstone, yeah, I suppose, I, was the yeah. most liberal prime minister. I don't think he got anywhere near that. Um, I mean, the, the thing I was going to say about Davis is oh, that's that... That's a good point, James. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> it just occurred to me. Um, anyway. it, it, David Davis is apparently capable of thought, so he must know that he's wrong here. But So why he, you know, is he in touch with reality and is just sort of, you know, making a, a case or is he actually out of touch with reality? And there are serious domestic issues that will, that are going to start to press very, very rapidly when negotiations start to happen about Brexit and it does look like they are going to happen. Subsidies. Uh, this government cannot match EU subsidies for regions. Like, that is not going to happen. Uh, huge economic instability as things, like, start to look like, why would you invest in Britain, for instance? And really, like, the other thing to say here, and it's the thing that, that actually should be understood across the political spectrum, is that there doesn't seem to me to be a, a way that you can press for a second referendum on, excuse me, on whatever deal is negotiated. Because why... Would you expect your negotiating partner to commit many thousands of man hours to coming up with a series of proposals that could then very easily be rejected? I mean, it's a, it's it's an absurd proposition, and so this is very very difficult. Actually, it's very difficult territory. Um, I mean, what if this is the scary thing now, right? And people are saying, well, the Tory, you've got people like you've got quite frankly these muppets on the centre left. I mean, I wouldn't call them centre left anymore because they don't even believe in sort of the most fundamental elementary aspects of democratic participation. That's quite clear uh, with the Corbyn stuff. Uh, people like Sonny Hundal and a lot of people on the centre-left, right, who write for The Guardian or whatever. Um, and they're saying, oh, my God, May will nail Corbyn. And the Tories, I think, will almost certainly win more seats than Labour at the general election. But... If you're, and that I think would be if, if if Labour don't win, it would be because of a failure of cohesion and of, of 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 administration and competence, right? It won't be because of policies or politics. Where the country is at, when you look at the politics of this cabinet, is not Theresa May, David Davis. I mean, they believe in people having guns, hanging, bringing back hanging. Pretty Patel wants to bring back hanging, right? Mm. So these are people which we thought were you know, off the scene 20, 30 years ago. These are the people who, when you had William Hague and Ian Duncan Smith as the Tory party leaders in the early noughties against Tony Blair, mm. they looked ridiculous, frankly. You know, there'd be sort of William Hague sort of taking a pound out, like Nigel Farage's bloody passport, showing it to people, we'll have the pound. One achievement of Gordon Brown is he kept us out of the Euro. Um, and yeah, we thought these people were over and then Cameron, to make the Tories party electable, did what he did and it, it yeah, it kind of worked and he was a very effective... A uh, competent politician for a long time, and then they've gone back to that. And yeah. this hasn't won an election for a very long time. This is even to the right of John Major, really. Mm, yeah. So I don't see 
where this presumption is that they're about to win a hundred seats off Labour, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more sceptical about Labour's prospects in these elections than you are, I think. But no, no, I I'm think... saying the Tories will win. I think the Tories will win a majority government if there was an election tomorrow. But I'm not. That's not because of policies. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right there. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening here is that they're trying to appeal to what they see as a, as the Brexit vote, mm. right? And one of the things here I think it, it, that's, that's difficult is, and that we should say, is that Brexit is connected to austerity in a couple of ways, right? So stagnant incomes um, probably boost hostility to, to migration. Same is true as probably of worsening public services. And, you know, part of actually the kind of, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, because the government here was doing sort of austerity, it couldn't argue for... Um, expansionist programs within Europe, right? Because <laughs> this would be a contradiction, um, which means that 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 you know the the case for Europe as a stable, you know, uh, growing thing, or, or the kind of thing that 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 could say, well, look, you know, um, there will be no cause for economic migration because actually growth in Europe is is stable, and there's sort of all this kind of Keynesian stimulus stuff going. Mm -hmm. on. That was not possible for them to do. Um, uh, and that would, you know, that would sort of nix any kind of economic migration argument. But this, I think, tells you only one dynamic. And so on the one hand, the Tory party wants to appeal to those people because they think, oh, well, you know, um, we can be racist. And this was in part a racist vote. But it's not the only one, you know. And one of them is 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 what you're talking about here, which is the return of people who have, who have actually had no political expression um, within, Tony Martin Tories. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, true. The kind of, you know, I call them sort of Colonel Hangham Floggham types. Yeah. Um, you know, these people have had very little political expression yeah. in Westminster for yeah. a, a long time, yeah. partly because of the Cameron ministry. And yeah. there's a reason that Cameron has always faced quite a, quite a great hostility from the party's base. Now, the Tory party base probably changed a bit under Cameron, probably brought in some of those sort of people who, who, who sort of did well under Blair and sort of want to preserve their, their sort of London townhouses or something. Yeah. Um, but I, the, I, I think change in the Tory base has been wildly overstated. Uh, conservative associations are still full of, of these people who, who have felt that the party has abandoned them for a long time. Um, so there's, there's more of a return to that. There's also, I think, somewhere in there, the sort of slightly swivel-eyed libertarian free marketeers, which is still a relatively small species in How British politics. How many of them are there, Well, really? that's what I'm saying, is there's relatively small species in British politics, <laughs> but uh, relatively powerful in Westminster. Even there's, in US politics, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Rand Paul didn't win this, Donald so, Trump did. So one of the things here is that uh, what they're conscious of is this, um, this very strange man um, Aaron Banks who has funded uh, one of the, the Leave campaigns and has said he's happy to pour like £10 million into a kind of UKIP Mark II to peel off the Tory right. So one sense of, of this government is the Tory party shoring up its own base. Um, so there's a lot of other stuff going on in the, what they're trying to do here. Um, it is very bad for us. This is the thing that I think you know, we should maybe emphasise. Um, you know, th this is a very, very regressive government. It's not... You know, this is a woman who, on a very 
thin legal pretext and probably illegally deported 50,000 students. Like, <laughs> she, this is the woman who uh, sent these sort of uh, immigrant go-home vans, you know, riding a, a, around London. I, a, a prime minister like this, in the wake of a massive, uh, you know, campaign that has centered around migration i don't think that looks very good at all and i you know it's it's really you know it's not a nice thing to contemplate um check on that yeah is that okay yeah you're listening to navara fm here on residence 104.4 fm London's and one radio station we've got just over half an hour left uh, navara fm aaron Mastani, james butler started from the bottom now we're here james <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Quite. They bought it renovated. We built it ground up, as Rick Ross says. A few points. UKIP Mark II. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Aaron Banks, lots of money. One million emails from leave.eu, widely described as the most professional political campaign in British history. Um, obviously, Farage has now resigned. So it looks like rather than a new party of the right, that we'll just see a big rebranding of UKIP. The favourite to win the UKIP leadership is a gentleman called Stephen Wolfe, who looks like he may be mixed heritage, may have some Afro-Caribbean in him. Uh, But he's also a very eloquent lawyer, very smart, very calm. Now, can he do the groundwork that something like a Farage has done for 20 years? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I mean, I think UKIP can go one of two ways here. It it can definitely still go up. Um... How does that relate to the next general election? How does that relate to Corbyn? I think Labour, I think Jeremy Corbyn in general election will almost certainly win more votes than Ed Miliband. I think he can even win 10, 11 million votes. The point is, and this is something you can't just write off, that the Labour right says, mm. UKIP could become a Lib Dems of the North. So Labour yeah. could win millions of votes up there and not many seats, right? So they could win more votes than Miliband a million and a half more votes than Miliband and yet finish with 20, 30 fewer seats. Uh, and that's got nothing to do with um, that's got nothing to do really with the, with the left or its failings it's about something that's been in the making for 20, 30 mm. years but that's the challenge that now confronts us in regards to Tory membership what does it look like uh, estimates range between 100 and 150,000 it looks like there's about 120,000 members around 60 years plus in terms of age the membership under Cameron has gone down significantly the big reason why was gay marriage lots of people left the party around gay marriage it's it's, it's the climb but I think it's, it's about a third of what it was in 2005 but also it's, it's without being rude it's older people in the organisation so there is a sort of natural uh, diminution of, of its membership obviously um Finally, well, not finally, I'll talk about Keynesianism and crab and, 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 and a Keynesian man in a second, but Brexit, very quickly. How bad is it? How big is it? Um, I think it's quite bad, and we'll know in around nine months how bad it is. We could be faced with the prospect of what economists call stagflation. Now, this is not inevitable, but it's quite probable. Now, what's stagflation? We'll see, we'll see the devaluing of the pound to both euro and the dollar. Okay. Some people are even saying we'll get parity for the first time in a very long time between the pound and the dollar. What does that mean? It means that imports of goods, of which we import a lot, will become more expensive. That mm. means the things you buy will go up in price. Okay. So when you have uh, declining value of your currency, increased costs of consumer durables, combined with a recession, that's called stagflation. Mm. And that's a very, very, very nasty situation to be in. And a European country 
hasn't been in it for a long time. It's a, it's a pretty bad situation to be in. So recession plus declining value of the currency, very bad, combined, of course, with diminished foreign direct investment. Um, it looks pretty bad. It looks pretty bad. I mean, it's probably the worst set of variables facing the British economy in, in decades, quite frankly. Uh, nothing's inevitable, of course. Um, and then finally, uh, the Keynesian stimulus. Uh, Theresa May even sort of playing, again, according to Richard Murphy, but I don't know, this guy's kind of a bit flaky, although he does excellent work on tax. He's saying that she's picking up the um, people's QE idea. Um, and I saw this uh, repeated by some people close to McDonald. I don't know if it's true or not, but we saw with Stephen Crabb, who got 2030 nominations to Tory leadership, didn't he? He said he wanted a £100 billion stimulus. And that puts him as an economic inter interventionist now. Mm -hmm. Left, although he's not left, he's a homophobe. He thinks you can cure people who are gay. But on the economy, he's more of an economic interventionist than three quarters yeah. of the Labour Party. The question is, will Theresa May um, do something similar? Mm. Some people are saying she will. Now, again, what does that mean? Not big time, but just kind of relax it slightly. Some, yeah, some goodies, yeah. Yeah. some goodies, right? And what does that mean for Labour? It means that if you say we're an anti-austerity party, that's not necessarily good enough anymore because austerity may be on ice. Yeah, um, I, I think that's probably true. Um, we can talk about economic interventionism a bit, actually, because that, that allows us to open up some stuff about the history of the Tory party, because one of the things we haven't touched upon is actually, do the Tory party believe in anything? I mean, this is a good and interesting question. So, let, I mean, let's take Cameron. Cameron's project is largely driven um, and yeah, I mean, we should say, you know, he, he has left us in, 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 in a horrible mess and, and a horrible mess that can get worse, right? I mean, if a major crisis happens in Europe, which is possible, I mean, if you look at the Italian banks at the moment, yeah. like, like by the end of this year, we'll know whether the Italian banks are going to go really, really bad or not. Yeah. Um, and, and or whether the Italian state can even form a government. There's a referendum in October. It's a slightly complex issue, which yeah. I won't go into, but that could set off all sorts of stuff in Europe. You know, the proposals that are, there are about our futures, like, oh, let's make it, Britain a Singapore of the North Atlantic, a kind of Hong Kong, um, <laughs> a digital dystopia, really. Anyway, so the Cameron Project, largely driven by a kind of detoxification of the Tory party, like re replacing its various ghouls with sort of these slick and cosmopolitan types. Um, you know, never much loved by the party. Um, that looks to be changing. Um, but what, to, you know, Theresa May, yes, made in the older Tory image, maybe even a pre-Thatcherite image, actually. Um, but, you know... <laughs> So this, what she's done is purged the Notting Hill set, really, that, that set of people around Cameron. Who are the Notting Hill set? So these are the people who were around Cameron. I mean, Gove being a classic one, Johnson being another. Um, but, you know, these people, but those people appointed particularly to ministries in, 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 in the last administration have now largely gone. I mean, the only one with really much power is Amber Rudd, actually, who is a sort of Osborne devotee. What's Letwin, what's Letwin doing? I can't remember. He was the eminence grease of the, of the Notting Hill set. Not he... think, let's not think about Oliver Lett. Right. I really don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I, but so, like, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, an odd, it's an odd thing to have happened. Um, so I don't, know, I, you know, I don't know what she thinks she's doing with this, but it does look like she's going back a bit to, to an older, sort of older model of the, the Tory party. And one of the things that the, the Tory party has always said is that, you know, uh, when, when people ask about what does the Tory party believe, why does it seem to shift so much, um, is that, you know, Tory party historians have always been 
you know, very proud of the political flexibility that allows it to present itself as kind of as, as the party that protects a rising class in society, right? And this is particularly true of Thatcher, but it's also true in, the, in kind of the early ones, combined with, you know, protecting the interests of, of those classes that have already risen. Um, so, I mean, and there's a question here about whether New Labour stole uh, their, their, you know, their clothes a little. Um I, I, I mean, and there has been change in, in the way the Tory party operates over the course of the, the 20th century. I and mean, you get Heath uh, called... Heath is the first Prime Minister who's elected by MPs rather than a, a very small circle of Tory grandees. And that tells you something about the change in their party. And it's isn't? still... Uh, even until, I think, Cameron, it was still very weird, it's right? A, yeah, it's it kind of was very, very open odd. to just fixing it. <clears throat> anyway. Very odd process. But, I mean, I think, I think you know, there's a... You know, one of the things to say here is, okay, Thatcher, and we think of the Tory party as being Thatcher, but it's a much, much older institution. And those older strata are there underneath Thatcherism and have survived within it. Um, so she certainly presided over a kind of passive revolution within the party, like transformed its class foundations a bit. Um, and part, partly that's to do with kind of socio-economic change at the time, but also partly, you know, the the kind of end of empire um, the final dregs of decolonization, um, you know, and, and the fact that she herself had no, this is, I'm cribbing Raphael Samuel here, actually, she had no feelings for the traditions of the British ruling class. It's the thing Raphael Samuel says about her, which he sort of rather admires about her. Anyway, um, you know, she purges the grandees. She appoints sort of uh, Tebbit and people like that who are really not traditional Tories. Um, but, you know, the, the, you know, so if we're thinking about the identity of the Tory party, we have to say, you know, the Tory party really is inseparable from the British state and its flexibility comes from its identity with it, right? Like, it's the state's great party and all of its intellectual commitments come secondary to that. It's not primarily an intellectual project. It's one of the things that's strange about Thatcher, actually, within conservatism, is that she's probably the closest, and that she wasn't a bright woman, um, she's probably the closest that the conservatives come to an ideologue. Um, and... Really, until the sort of, you know, and, and again, even now, people like Dominic Cummings, who is the, the who is Gove's kind of Hayekian puppet master or, or sort of pet ideologue, whichever way around you want to make the relationship. He's a very rare breed within conservative yeah, I mean, parties. Carswell, who thinks he's a bit yeah. of a thinker. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, he... I mean, he was a rare beast, right? Mm, so mm, he's explicitly trying to intellectualise their position. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the historical bases of the Conservative Party, which I think you see continually playing out, are a defence of the union. So the name of the, the party is the Conservative and Unionist Party, right? And the union here means the union of the British state. And while recently that has meant kind of England and Scotland, um, you know, historically it's a question about Ireland uh, and the relationship of England to Ireland especially. Uh, it, you know, so on, so defence of the union, really, really important. Defence of empire, very, very important historically to the Conservative Party. Um, and then two things, kind of defence of the British state and its constitution, so the institutions of state. Yeah. Um, and so courts, universities, uh, uh, Westminster, that kind of stuff. Uh, what we would maybe call the establishment. Um, and the defence of property. And that is a relatively late phenomenon. Um, 1930s? Yeah, I, because there's, so there's a, a long conflict in the Tory party about free trade uh, and about tariffs uh, and about tariff reform. And it's really only um, when you get 
the birth of a Labour movement and the rise of the Labour Party, that really the Tory party becomes kind of identified utterly with kind of private property. The city goes over to them first as there's an early and kind of quite intimate relationship between finance capital in sort of the early 20th century and the Tory party. It takes a lot longer for manufacturing to come on side. Yeah. Um, uh, Great point by uh, Paul Mason, the interview I did with him. It's up on the Navarra Media Facebook page on YouTube as well. And it's so true, right? Um, Stanley Baldwin, Tory MP in the 30s, probably the most successful Tory politician of the 20th century by a few measures, actually. Go go uh, check the guy out, Google him, Stanley Baldwin. Um, if you look at, and it's a really good point, you go in suburban Britain, Britain, you just see house, if you're listening, your parents' house, for instance, right? Suburban Britain. It's probably built in the 1930s mm-hmm. under a conservative government. Now, why was that? It was because we have a huge crisis of 1929, the Great Depression. We have a Labour government. Can't deal with it. right? It's, it, it gets a mandate because there's a huge crisis of capitalism. Um, and the solution was a very intervent, well, an increasingly interventionist Tory party, but with lots of houses, lots of fixed capital, lots of infrastructure. And it did that, like you say, it added a new... Uh, sediment of ideology mm. uh, to its historical claims, which was the right to own property, a property owning democracy, an Englishman's house is his castle. Um, and I think that was added to the previous uh, light motifs of Tory sort of propaganda and, and rhetoric that you've already highlighted. This is a really interesting point, and we can't neglect it. I think the left neglects it, and people looking at Britain, especially from outside of Britain, don't really understand it. But Britain had a historically much stronger working class Tory element than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool and Birmingham at the beginning of the the, the 20th century, Tory cities. Right, exactly. And the Primrose League. Um, Primrose League was named after the favourite flower of Benjamin Disraeli, Tory Prime Minister. And it was a bigger membership organisation than the trade unions or any kind of liberal Whig organisation. And its motto was Imperium et Libertas, Empire and Liberty. Now, that sums up in three words, actually, the base of working class Toryism until obviously the the disintegration of the British Empire, which was your empire, um, your liberty, and to a certain extent your prosperity, premised upon mm. their subjection and empire, i.e. Uh, actually, okay, you're working class people, you have a certain relationship to the means of production, yes, you're trampled on by the British establishment, but we've got this wonderful thing called the empire, so we can A, take all this wealth away from all these other people and give some of it to you, and B, you have some life opportunities, should you choose to take them, to leave Britain, go to Australia, to go to Canada, wherever, and yeah, again, uh, participate in an act of economic self-enhancement, mm-hmm. uh, which ties into that later idea of property and democracy, that 1930s idea. So this really can't be overlooked when we talk about working class consent for conservatism. It goes back a long, long, long way. Yeah, and I I think what's important here is to recognise the kind of protean nature of the Conservative Party. It allows itself to adapt to this. So every time the Conservative Party ends up out of power, it kind of reorganises itself and starts to accept some of the changes that are made in its absence. So, I mean, there's Friedrich Hayek in 1960 really goes for the British Conservatives because he says, you know, 
they lack firm principles uh like they 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 can't do anything about kind of this kind of drift this laborish drift towards uh you know, uh, uh, Keith Joseph also says it. Like that, that he describes it as kind of a ratchet, right? That like every time a Labour government gets in, it drifts towards kind of better welfare spending, like more, uh, you know, sort of more intrusion on the individual stuff like that. But in, in a sense, that's that's the strength of the Tory Party. Um, like it, it, it sort of it adapts itself when it's out of power, and it repositions itself, and it can accept changes in the role of the state, and and particularly. It, particularly in England, the Conservative Party justifies it by like actually quite a long tradition that certainly Baldwin, Chamberlain as well, um, of using the state to promote welfare and security and protect profit as well, right? And like, so, th- and this is one of the things that happens in the 30s is that the government intervenes because it needs to protect jobs and profit. And, you know, it's, it's intervening for capitalists, but it provides a basis for the Tory party to, to then say, well, look, we can accept some of the stuff that Labour does or wants to do with the state um, because we, we come from a, this kind of one nation-y sort of, you know, well, I mean, you can fill in the blanks. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really, it's 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 it blunts much of the challenge of the labour movement by accepting interventionism. Um, and you know, really, it, it it you know, once it institutes imperial preference, um, you know, so preferable trade relationships with uh, uh, colonies, uh, which is where. Christmas pudding comes from, or Christmas yeah. Christmas cake. <laughs> yes, isn't I mean, it one ingredient from each of the colonies? This is this is how the Tory Party adapts itself. It says like this: we'll do this and and provide sort of economic and military security, and this will provide a basis for extended welfare provision. Um, so you know, this is uh, this is it. it, it you know, and it it really it actually strikes me as something. You know, this is historical speculation. I won't spend too much time on it, but it seems to me that Heath is heading in this direction um, when he comes to power. And had it not been for kind of industrial struggle and industrial unrest, um, the kind of end of a kind of corporatist settlement, by which I mean uh, government conceived of as a point that synthesizes relationships of kind of represented classes in society. So the point of the government is to kind of balance say, the interests of labour, in, as in the trade unions and the kind of the bosses and in, in kind of you know, capitalist organisations or whatever, and find a, find a balance between them. That sense breaks down under Heath. And as I've said before in the show, in a crisis point, this new kind of ideology comes along under Thatcher and um, with Thatcher, which is very, very strongly resisted by members of, of the old members of the party when, when sort of she emerges. Um, it's starting to remember actually now for what's going on right now with the Labour Party, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is yes. that this kind of uh, this rupture, this kind of paradigm shift was not welcomed by, mm-hmm. by the Tory mm-hmm. establishment? But yeah, so I mean, you know, it... it, it yeah, I mean it's it's a change in sense I think in, in between Heath and Thatcher, which is that like one of the the instincts of the Conservative Party under Heath is to find like reasonably wide consent for what they're doing, right? Um, Thatcher actually realizes that you don't need wide consent, and that allows her to do what she. I think wants. the first, I mean, I think the first couple of years unemployment more than doubles under Thatcher, doesn't it? Between seventy nine and eighty one, things really go south. I'd I'd have to look at yeah, up, and but... the, that's why we get all these big urban riots in eighty one. Um, <laughs> There's a big context there. Second Reform Act, again, we're talking about the, almost the genius of the Tories to, to basically win power. Second Reform Act is the first time in, in, in British history that elements of the working class are given the vote. 1868. Okay, some working class men are given the vote. Now, who gives it to them? Who gives it to them, James? 
Benjamin Disraeli, right? Tory Prime Minister. He does it to split the Liberals, and mm. they do it because they believe with the empire they can give a certain buy-in to elements of the working class and they'll get their consent, which turns out to have been uh, the case. And I think we said this so many times, even just a year, two years ago, three years ago, it's perfectly plausible that the Tory party on economic interventionism moves left before the Labour Party. Now, that's not happened because of Jeremy Corbyn. But I think that some of the things Theresa May may outline in the next six months, year, will be completely heterodox to sensible Labour, chukka umana, right? Mm, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. who now, who don't really have a brain, you know, they don't really think about <laughs> things. And... I mean, that's quite an interesting place to be. And people go, oh, look, well, actually, Theresa May is quite left wing, but she's a little bit racist and a bit xenophobic. That is that is what national socialism is. A very light version of it. I'm not saying that's what this... Of course not. That's incredibly... Uh, that would be ridiculous. But it's a variant of it, right? So you've had this before. People go, oh, my God, you know... How could you agree with this thing? This person agrees with this thing. What well, Marine Le Pen believes in the socialization of production, the nationalization of production. Okay, fascists do historically. It's the other yeah. stuff that's also uh, a bit concerning. And Theresa May could advocate a very left wing economic uh, sort of uh, prospectus. The problem is that will be attended by probably. Well, almost certainly, incredibly racist migration policy, incredibly authoritarian policing and prison policies, uh, racist uh, moreover. So, yeah, maybe we've got over 10 minutes left. Can we talk a little bit about what that means so that you could have a kind of more progressive economic outlook, but be more authoritarian in other areas? And how does the left respond to this? Well, I mean, I can't answer you on how the left responds to it. Um, but what it would look like is a project that that people on the left have kind of been fond of or thought of sometimes, which is kind of very, you know, which involves constraining uh, inflow and outflow, right? So you constrain migration, you constrain uh, capital, possibly, um, and then manage to build a kind of relatively closed, prosperous economic system. That is a model that was certainly possible historically. I don't... I'm not sure it is actually really possible anymore. And the fact that it's not possible might cause actually kind of some some, some real problems. Um, I, I think what, like maybe one of the, the things here to, to detect is is that is like one of the historical roots of this situation is it is a problem with Europe, right? Which is a problem with this kind of island nation relationship to Europe, and that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. Right. So we lose the empire. Um and this is something that the Conservatives don't really get over. <laughs> it really, they really don't ever get over it. And I think that this is really important in understanding the dynamic of what's going on at the moment. It's one of the things Paul Gilroy talks about. He talks about kind of post-imperial melancholia, characterised by kind of, you know, upswings and sort of spasms of kind of nationalist fervour uh, and a kind of deluded sense of, 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 of Britain's role in the world. And, you know, so people like Chamberlain were very favourable of a kind of European entry into kind of Europe because partly because they read the world economy in such a way that strategically it makes sense for Britain to be part of Europe, right? Um, but it's also, you know, like it, it balances Britain away from its extremely subordinate relationship to the United States, which is the thing that had taken the place of Britain's empire, really. 
Um, you know, Which is what the Atlanticists want, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, the yeah, Blimp yeah. Fox. They yeah, literally yeah. wanted to become the 51st yeah, it's state. Just, it's just ludicrous. And they're now in cabinet positions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the thing is, the thing about Britain's entry into Europe, which is the thing that de Gaulle was suspicious about, is that Britain has acted historically as kind of a mediator of American influence within Europe. So I mean, there's, a, there's a long and very kind of rancorous split within the Conservatives. It's, it's its problem. It's the like key problem for the Conservative Party is that, that Europe screws them Every time, every time, every major split, every major problem in the Tory party, it's Europe. It has and we've been apart. saying this for years, haven't we? This will yeah. split them. And then I mean, it's, watching it's, it happens, quite something. Yeah, but what's interesting is that it, it, it does for Thatcher, um, but it's, it seems that because they like power so much, you know, they're pretty good at kind of stabbing each other and getting over and done with them and sort of getting back to being in power. But, you know, I mean, it's, it, what the route for renewal is now of the Tory party, so, for, so they spent a long time in... In exile, right, under the kind of, you know, rather, rather sort of ludicrous Ian Duncan Smith, um, the kind of entirely fatuous William Hague, the rather sinister Michael Howard, these people uh, who are kind of, you know, who are people who, you know, just kind of projections of a kind of Tory fantasy, really. Um, but then they renew themselves by kind of blaring themselves a bit and cleaning it out. And so is Theresa May a renewal of some kind? Well, what kind of renewal does she represent? I mean, she represents a change of balance, in, obviously, over Europe within the party and certainly within the country. Um, she's happy to concede a lot of stuff, it looks like, to the kind of Brexit camp. Like, she's put Brexit people in relatively powerful positions. Um what then happens and, and what that spells for in terms of government policy is very, very difficult to predict. I find her very difficult to predict. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure like what... Because, again, this comes back to the, the, the dimensions of this crisis. And, you know, I, I really do think it's, a, it's, it's quite a serious one, actually. And I don't... And the problem is that there isn't a political resolution for it. Like... It, the, you know, economically and politically, you know, it's a very difficult position to be in for which there is no obvious political solution, right? There is no obvious good political solution. Yeah. So in addition to the economic stuff I outlined a, a little while ago, we've also, like you say, we've got a, we've got a political problem. Uh, so what's the bigger context for this? Uh, we're obviously seeing a decline of the two-party system. Uh, clearly, the SNP had 56 of 59 seats in Scotland. That's happening. UKIP won 4 million votes. The Greens won 1 million votes. Okay. Uh, the Lib Dems still have eight seats. So we clearly have more than a two-party system. And the problem is, with the two-party system, because nobody else could compete, if you, whatever you believed in, you had to join this big coalition, really. So the Tories had people like Ken Clark sitting alongside people like John Redwood. Very different politics. Mm. Labour had democratic socialists alongside social democrats, alongside liberals. Very different. Now, what that meant was you had the two-party system. It masked a lot of difference. Uh, that is falling apart. We don't know how it will fall apart. It seems to be leading to the end of the union. That's one. It's led to Brexit because of the rise of UKIP and the Tory party could no longer control its Eurosceptic right. That's two. And third symptom, it's led to the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party. 200 to one outsider. He's now the top guy. He has the support of most of the, well, they say the unions, a few of them may be a bit ropey, and the vast majority of the membership. So th these three outcomes all belie a complete... Uh, 
decline, deterioration of the two-party system. What does that mean in terms of the... This is just all uncertainty, right? Stagflation, Brexit, Article 50, the political system. Very few certainties. Like I say, one of them is probably the end of the union. Other than that, very, very tough to predict. Well, I mean, there are major problems with the end of the union stuff, don't forget. I mean, they, they, uh, you know, it may just be... I mean, one of the, I suppose... I think we'll the, get an English parliament, I mean, personally. I think probably one of the things to talk about maybe actually is also the way, and we don't have time for it really, but the way that the Tory party has become actually an English party. And very, very majorly so. I mean, it, you know, they're, they're bad everywhere, but the Scottish Tory party is increasingly quite a different beast from the English Tory and party. Also, that didn't historically used to be the case. And whether, whether that differentiation mm. held together by their mutual interest in power will allow them to keep Britain together, I don't know, but it's possible. I, 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 there is a route for the union staying together. I think it's, I think it's unlikely. Yeah. Uh, additionally, you're saying it's an English party rather than a British party. Mm. I mean, also, look what's going on in the north of England, right? You could finishing, you could finish second in 121 seats. Now, people with an agenda will say, "Oh, they've got the Labour vote. Oh my God, well, Labour is still winning these places." And the point is, they're taking some Labour voters. They're taking probably as many historically, 20, 30 years ago, the kinds of demographics as working-class Tories. These are working-class Tories to a significant extent. I'm not going to say most of them. Let's say it's a good mix. It's going to change from place to place, okay? So the Tories are no longer even really a player in many seats in the north of England, the former industrial heartlands of, of Labour mining areas and so on and so forth. We're seeing UKIP become second. The question is, can UKIP win those places, right? So like you say, for Theresa May to say we are the Conservative and Unionist Party at a precise moment where their geographical reach is really limited to the seats they're now winning. They're not really competing outside of the seats that they now win, really. Yeah, but they... Yeah, okay. I mean, you could say that's true for all the parties, I suppose, but it's more true for them than anyone else. Um, Yeah, I think. But I mean, the the, the thing here is that, like, there's... You know the reason I think that these that the May stuff is important is that we've done, you know, what like two Tory governments essentially, one coalition, one out and out, Um, and they have managed, as we were saying at the top of the show, to change the common sense about sort of social provision, about the size of the state, stuff like that. Now, if you put on top of that a kind of inclination to, and who knows where we go economically, right? Yeah. So it might be a kind of protectionist, it might be a kind of, you know, even like sort of vaguely Keynesian conservatism. That's yeah. possible. Yeah. But it's the politics as well that's really, really dangerous here. You put Theresa May in charge of like, you know, how, you know, immigrants are treated in this country. Well, look look at her tenure in the Home Office, it's not great. And, you know, you have these kind of, you build on top of this kind of utterly sort of uh, evacuated sense of like social obligation, a kind of very rebarbative, very kind of uh, reactionary, really, is the word that I'm looking for, uh, sense of how society should be run, then I, I, I don't think we're looking at a, a terribly pleasant place to be at all. And what the possibility is for left politics in a state that is increasingly authoritarian, increasingly uh, like has a common sense that's deeply anti-migrant, um, you know, uh, perhaps like deeply, deeply kind of old school family reactionary in a way that it hasn't been for a couple of generations. Yeah. I, it's not not a nice prospect at all. Yeah, I mean, like like we've said uh, a few times over the last couple of weeks, you know, we thought since 2010 that the most interesting that's not always a good thing. Political scenarios were in Spain, in Greece, certainly not here. 
And then, yeah, since Brexit, Britain has all of a sudden become an absolute powder keg. If I was a young person now, I really would be quite um, concerned about my future, I think. Uh, and I think actually that's one thing that we, you know we we lived amongst. We've got just two minutes left. I'll finish on this. You know, we, you and I sort of were raised in the Blair years, mm. and for all of its flaws, uh, there was the Iraq War and so on. These are obviously unforgivable. It did feel like things were getting better. I think, even though for many people they weren't, there was at least a, a feeling that the deterioration that you'd seen maybe during the early '90s, late '80s had kind of stopped. At least it was sort of temporarily halted, uh, and lots of people felt that their lives were were going to get better. I feel like that's kind of disappeared. Um, I don't know, I don't know. But yes, these are very, very, very strange times. And of course, may you live in interesting times is a curse. It's not a good thing. James, uh, your final thoughts. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I can only echo, echo what you say. I mean, I think really here that the the sense is of a very, very fractured and quite fractious uh, now political situation, uh, which is increasingly being held together by a kind of authoritarian uh, trait in government. May is obviously trying to mask this, uh, and she's you know she's positioning herself as kind of sort of a Christian Democrat, sort of like yeah. one nationish. Angela Merkel. Kind how of. long? How long that lasts yeah. depends on how turbulent uh, economic times get. On that note, James, thank you so much. Uh, this is Navara FM on Navara Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navara FM is brought to you by Navara Media. To find out more about our work, head to navaramedia.com and wire.navaramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.